Our scripture this morning is from Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplined us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. I want to remind you tonight that we have a very important meeting. It's our members meeting. We'll be spending some time in prayer for about 15 minutes or so and then getting into the rest of our uh, annual members meeting. We'll vote on some elders tonight, also our budget where we're headed next year. And so if you're a member, we would really like you, uh, encourage you, expect you to be here tonight and uh, be a part of this um, important moment. We will be having some prayer time with elders at five o'clock in our prayer, time, in our prayer room. If you uh, need some personal prayer, we'd love to have some of our elders uh, pray with you uh, during that time. This morning's uh, speaker is a real delight for me to introduce to you. You've heard me say at times that I have about five men that God providentially put into my life who shaped my theology, my pastoral ministry. Today, you get to be blessed by one of those men. Dr. John Street is uh, presently the chair of uh, Biblical Counseling Department at Master's College and Seminary in uh, California. I met John in uh, 1992, was privileged to be an intern at his church for an entire year at a church called Clear Creek Chapel in Springboro, Ohio. John did our premarital counseling and I got to just watch how we lived. And as I watched Clear Creek, I thought, I want a church like Clear Creek, and College Park is that kind of church. I watched how he um, conducted himself as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, and as I grew, just was like, I just wanna be like John. And uh, so it's a great uh, privilege for me to introduce to you a dear friend, and you're gonna be blessed today from Hebrews chapter 12. So John, God bless you, brother. Come and bring the word. Would you welcome Dr. John Street, please? Wow, such a pleasure to be here. I have to confess, as I did in the earlier service, the fact that um, our, our great uh, selfish desire to be here is just to spend some time with Mark and Sarah and uh, get caught up in all the years and see how God has blessed his ministry. And certainly it's a joy to be here at College Park. I bring you greetings, Master's College and Seminary and from Grace Community Church where John MacArthur is pastor. And that's where I serve as an elder. And uh, it's just a pleasure to, um, I have a lot of friends actually that are part of your congregation. We spent this weekend working on a leadership uh, retreat and talking really about marriage issues the entire weekend. This morning, we want to get into Hebrews chapter 12. So if you want to take your Bible and go over to Hebrews chapter 12, as the passage that was just read in verses 7 through 11, and we've entitled our message this morning, Is God punishing me? Is God punishing me? It's a good question. It may be a question that you've asked yourself over the years, or maybe you've expressed that to a friend, and you've shared what's gone on in your life, and then asked the question, what's God doing? Is He punishing me? 
Sometimes I have an opportunity over the past 40 years of ministry of listening to a lot of stories and a lot of hardship that people have gone through just in a, in a counseling context and have them pour out their heart and tell about their life story. And at the conclusion of that, they will look at me sometimes with tears in their eyes and they'll ask the question, is God punishing me? And that is a question that a lot of Christians ask themselves. And we want to answer that question this morning because I think it's a real critical one. And one of the main reasons why we're asking that question is because of something that happened in my life about five or six years ago. Um, in the position that I have there at the Master's College and Seminary, I travel quite a bit. And about every other year, we have a chance to go to Switzerland and then to Germany and do training with pastors from all over those respective countries. I had just completed about a week to 10 days in Switzerland, and then we went to Cologne, Germany. And at that particular um, church, there were about 300, three to 400 pastors and church leaders and their wives from all over Germany that had gathered together to learn how to use the Word of God to address serious problems of life, serious issues like depression or anxiety disorders or things as complicated as schizophrenia, how to use the Word of God to address those particular issues. And so we spent time working and teaching, and there was another professor that went with me. And um, this particular time in Cologne, we were in a church right in the shadow of the big United Nations building that's there that has uh, representatives from all over the world. And so this church was a composite of a variety of different kind of people coming from different countries all over the world. And um, that first day of the conference was a pretty exhausting day. I have a, a man who graduated from the Master's Seminary who grew up in Switzerland. He spoke German fluently and actually came to the United States during his high school years, learned to speak English fluently. He actually went through high school in southern Indiana and played football in southern Indiana. He's one of the rare people that I know from Switzerland that ever played football. Uh, he's a tall guy, bald head. His name is Martin Manton. He's a good friend, and he is a fluent translator. I can just talk the way I'm talking now, and he can translate me without me pausing at all, and he just fluently translates into German, and that's how good he is. So I enjoy working with Martin. At the end of that first day of our conference, it was around 7 o'clock in the evening. I had the last address. I spoke for about an hour and then concluded with prayer and Martin had translated the entire time, and as Martin and I were wrapping up our notes, I noticed that there was an elderly lady that made her way up the aisle. She had a scarf around, tied around her head. She had a very long gray coat on, and first thing I noticed about her was how swollen her ankles were, which suggested some kind of congestive heart failure. And she grabbed my big translator by the arm and pointed a bony finger at me. And I said, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And she, he said to me, she wants to talk with you. Well, I had been teaching all day long, and we had just concluded the last session, and I could hear my bed calling me. <laughs> so I was ready to say to her, listen, I'm not responsible for anything I say after 8 o'clock in the evening. 
But before I could say that, Martin turns to me and said, she wants to tell you something that she has never told anyone her entire life. When a 75-year-old woman says that to me, she really has my attention. And so we walked over to the side of the church. We sat down. We had, there was three chairs there. I had prayer with her, and I said, tell me what God has laid upon your heart. And for the next hour and a half, she shared her whole life story. I'm just going to give you just a little segment of that story. This woman actually was born in the Soviet Union at the time, early 1900s, when the Soviets still controlled, communism controlled Russia. And she was actually a descendant of immigrants from Germany to Russia. If you know anything about, a little bit about your history, you know that when Peter III of Russia was assassinated, his wife, Catherine, which later on became Catherine the Great, took over to rule Russia. And at that particular time, in the late 1700s, the Russian economy was uh, in a horrible situation. Uh, Russia was very poor, but it was land rich. So they had lots and lots of land, but very, very little money. And so Catherine the Great actually went to Germany to talk with the German farmers. And the German farmers at that time were the best farmers in the world. And she said, if you're willing to come to Russia, teach us how you farm, then we'll give you large plots of land and you can have huge farms. And so thousands upon thousands of German farmers left Germany, went to Russia in order to train the Russians in the way in which they farm. And if you go to Russia, even to this day, there are conclaves of these German communities all over Russia. My wife and I were just in Samara, Russia, central Russia, um, this past year, there are actually 500 pastors from all over Russia that came to the conference that we taught at. And, the, and there are still those German groups of families all over, spotted all over Russia. And this lady was actually a descendant. She grew up in a pastor's home. Her father pastored an illegal church under the Soviet and communist regimes. And they met out in the woods. It was a church of about two or 300 people. And she grew up in that church. She became a teenager. And later as a teenager, she fell in love with a young man in that church. And she believed that he loved her. And then she made a very tragic and very sinful mistake. And she spent the night with that young man. And in that one encounter, she became pregnant. And that brought huge shame upon herself, upon her family, upon her father's ministry, upon that church. And her father and mother were beside themselves trying to figure out exactly what to do about this. Abortion obviously was not an option because they were Christians. And so eventually her uncle came along and proposed that one of the ways to deal with this was to uh, get her a job. And he was able to secure a job for her, which was unusual at that particular time, early 1900s, uh, to get a young woman into a job in another town. And his idea was to send her to that particular job until the baby came, and then she could deliver the baby, give it up for adoption, and then come back, and that way everybody was save face. 
She didn't like this option at all. And what made matters worse was that when her boyfriend found out that she was pregnant, he didn't want to have anything to do with her at all. And that crushed her because she really, really loved him. And she thought he loved her. That's what she thought. But now he didn't want to have anything to do with her. She described the day that they took her down to the train station. Her uncle, her father, her mother, her siblings, and she was so angry about what was going on, she refused to say goodbye to her uncle or her father or mother or any of her siblings. She got on the train and that was the last time she ever saw them. And she described for me on that train trip her anger and how her heart was so full of hatred and anger against her father, her mother, her uncle, and God. She finally arrived at the town that she was supposed to be in. It was on the southern edge of Siberia. Um, and she got off the train and she met a person there and they took her to this job location. And to her horror, her uncle never told her this. He had gotten her a job in a work camp, which was actually a prison facility of 600 men, and she was responsible for the kitchen. There was no one else in that kitchen to help her, and so twice a day, every day, she had to prepare 600 meals for those men. That was her job. And then with tears running down her face, she began to describe for me how every day, sometimes repeatedly every day, she was raped. It was hell on earth. Nine months went by. She described how during the wintertime, she was walking into the nearby town to supply to get supplies for the kitchen and the baby decided to come and she by herself sat down in the snow and she delivered her own baby and she that baby was was the reason why her life was in shambles and she was going through all that she had to go through and after she delivered her baby she took that baby and threw it out over the ice And I looked up at her, and the tears are running down her cheeks, and she said, I've never told anybody that ever before. And I look at my big translator, and he's got tears in his eyes. Well, through a set of circumstances, she was able to get away from that work camp and move to East Germany while the wall was still up between East and West Germany. She got a job there. She wasn't there very long where she met a young man. They fell in love. They got married. Not long after they got married, she got pregnant. And when she got pregnant, he left her and she never saw him again. She delivered a little baby girl. And for the next 20 years, she raised her daughter. Her daughter grew up, got married. Not long after she was married, she had a granddaughter. And two months after the granddaughter was born, her daughter and son-in-law were both killed in a terrible accident and the baby was maimed and now she's left with her granddaughter to raise her granddaughter for the next 20 years. 
In the meantime, the wall between East and West Germany comes down. Everybody in East Germany, which was the economically depressed area of Germany, flooded into West Germany because it was prosperous. And she was a part of that flood, and she located in Cologne, Germany. And her daughter, granddaughter, began attending the church that I was speaking in. And through that experience, her granddaughter gave her life to Christ. And she started coming home and saying, Grandma, why don't you come to church with me? Not interested. Come on, Grandma, come to church with me. Not interested. Uh, granddaughter was very persistent. Come on, Grandma, you got to come to church. Not interested. Gave up on church, God, long time ago. Not interested in any of that stuff. That didn't stop the granddaughter. She kept coming back. Grandma, come to church with me. <laughs> so Grandma said, okay, listen, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go to church with you once, once. After that, I don't want you to ask me anymore. That's it. Okay. And through that one experience, going to church, God melted Grandma's cold heart, and she surrendered her life to Christ. All of that occurred just four months before we arrived to that conference. And now Grandma had walked four or five blocks in the pouring rain to come and hear someone talk about how the Bible can be used in its sufficiency to address the serious issues of life. And she was caught up in the whole thing. And she concluded her story with tears running down her face, and she looked at me square in the eye, and she said... Is God punishing me? That's a great question, isn't it? That's something that probably you've wondered with what you've gone through. Is God punishing me? And it deserves an answer. I noticed she had a little Bible there. And I said, I want you to grab your Bible. So why don't you take your Bible just for a moment? I'll show you. Let's go over, put a little marker in Hebrews 12 because we're coming back there. But go over to... Romans chapter 8. She couldn't find Romans, and so Martin had to take her little Bible and find it for her. And I said, I want you to read Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. And she read it out loud. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus from her German Bible. And I asked her the question, do you know who wrote that? She said, no. I said, a man by the name of Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote that particular verse. Do you know who Paul was? And she said, no. I said, aside from being an apostle of Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul was a man who had spent his life earlier participating in the murder of Christians. I said to her, this is a murderer writing these words. And she looked at me and she looked down at her Bible and she looked at me and she looked down at her Bible again and she read, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the tears swelled up in her eyes again. And I sat there and explained that verse to her and what that verse meant. And I said, here's what I want you to do. Now you've got to understand that I had just spent the last hour and a half listening to this woman's story. And as a pastor and as a counselor, I've just identified about 40 things in this woman's life I have to address. I'm just checking them off in my mind as I'm hitting all these issues. We're going to be here until 5 o'clock in the morning. 
But I had to really cut down to the quick of things. And I said, I explained to her what this verse meant in relationship to her life. And I said, here's what I'd like for you to do. I want you to go home tonight and memorize this verse. And I want you to come back tomorrow and tell me what that means in relationship to what has happened in your life. She agreed. And by the way, that was a tall order for a 75-year-old gal. So we had prayer. We made sure she had a ride home. She wasn't going to walk home four blocks in pouring rain. The next day, I saw Martin at the church. I said, Martin, have you seen our, our lady? He said, no. And just then, she comes bursting through the double doors of the church, heading about as fast as a 75-year-old woman could move towards us. And she had the biggest toothless grin you ever saw. And she finally got to us, and I said, Martin, ask her to quote her verse. She quoted it perfectly. I asked him, now, ask her to explain what that verse means in relationship to her life. And she looked at me in the eyes, and tears came again, and she said, you know, all the guilt that I've carried for the last 55 years, it's gone. It's gone. And the tears just rolled down her cheeks. I said, where did it go? She said, Jesus Christ took the guilt. He took the punishment. I'm not condemned. I said, that's right. That's right. Is God punishing me? It's a good question, isn't it? Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12 just for a moment. I have four things I want to identify for you in this particular passage. You may want to write these down. You'll find yourself that you may need them someday in the future or somebody you know will need them. Four observations about this passage that will help you. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? One of the ways you can translate the first phrase of that verse is, we are to endure hardship as discipline. God is treating us as sons. We are to endure hardship. You say, all hardship, yep, no matter how small, no matter how great that hardship is, we are to endure hardship as discipline. God is treating us as one of his children. Let me make the first observation here. Write this down. I must view hardship as God's discipline. I must view hardship as God's discipline. Everything in my life, I mean, everything that I experience in terms of adversity or affliction, that's something that I have to endure as God's discipline in my life? Absolutely. This is the way our God works. Let me show you an example right out of Scripture. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll pick up in verse 2. Here God is describing, it's really a commentary on why 
he took the people of Israel through their wilderness experience. Why did he do that? Why didn't he bring them out of Egypt and put them right into the promised land? Why did they have to go through 40 years of that wilderness experience? Well, he explains why. Verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might, look at this, humble you. Do you see that? Humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Now listen, God was not testing them so that he could know what was in their heart. He already knew. He's omniscient, right? He already knew. He's not testing them so he can know what's in their hearts. He's testing them so that they would know what's in their hearts. That's why he took them through the wilderness experience. Why does God take you through the difficulties that you experience in life? This is a great question. So that you will know what's in your heart. He turns up the pressure and the heat in your life. And whatever comes out, and sometimes it's not very pretty, that's you. That's you. You know when you get really angry at your wife and the words fly and you say to yourself, I can't believe I just said that. You get angry at your husband. You get angry at your children. Or your, the children get angry at their parents because things aren't going their way. We say and do hateful, mean things. Why do we do that? Because it was already latent in our hearts. Sometimes I say to counselees, if I hold a sponge out over my Bible and I squeeze that sponge, why is my Bible all wet? And they roll their eyes and they'll say, well, your Bible's wet because you squeeze the sponge. And I'll say, no, that's not the reason why my Bible's wet. My Bible's wet because there was water in the sponge. Why is there a mess in your life after God has turned up the pressure? It's because it was already latent in your heart. And God is showing you what your heart is like. You notice, he says to the people of Israel, he humbled them. That means that they had a better view of their own heart and their own lives than they should have. And he has to lower their self-esteem. He has to lower their self-esteem. Or as my kids used to say when they were growing up, selfish steam. So testing you to know what was in your heart, look at this at the end of verse 2, whether you would keep his commandments or not, and he humbled you, the second time he said that, and let you go hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But listen to this. Man lives by cunning? No. By his own resources? No. By every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then he says in verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. 
This is what God does. Our God is a tester of hearts. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. The Lord tests hearts. Take your Bible. Go over to Psalm 119, verse 67. Psalm 119, verse 67. Look at this. Before I was afflicted, the psalmist says, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Verse 71 says, verse 73 says, your hands made me, that's the Hebrew past tense, and fashioned me, that's the Hebrew imperfect, that means he's continuing to fashion us. He made me in the past, but he's continuing to work on me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We have a tendency to think that God is being unfaithful to us when he afflicts us. But God says, the psalmist says, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. Again, that goes back to how sufficient the word of God is in your life. How sufficient is God's word in your life? Sometimes when I go to restaurants, I order hot tea. And the waitress will always bring out a great big box and it has all these variety of teas in it. And I tell her, you're incredibly unpatriotic. The only kind of tea in the Boston Harbor was black tea. None of this herbal stuff or any of that. It's only black tea. <laughs> That's all I'm interested in. Just give me some nice black tea. Now, how do I know whether or not that tea's any good? I can look who manufactured it. I can smell it. I can look at the packaging of it. I really don't know whether or not that tea's any good until what? I'm able to put that tea in hot water. When I dip that bag into hot water, then that tells me whether or not that tea's any good. God does that with your heart, you understand. He takes your heart and he dips it into hot water. And that shows you all of your imperfection. He takes you through that hardship and that affliction and that trial in order to show you the imperfections of your own heart. This is what God does. I must view hardship as God's discipline in my life. This is really critical. There's a second thing. Let's go back to Hebrews 12. Verses 8 and 9. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? So number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline in my life. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. This is what a coach does to a team. He takes that team through practice, hardship, whether it be football or soccer or 
uh, swimming coach or whatever the case may be, that coach takes that team through hardship. Why? Because he loves to see his team suffer, right? No. Because he wants to perfect that team. He wants to perfect them. Our God, as a loving father, does the same thing. He wants to perfect us. Psalm 89. Here the psalmist says in verse 33, he talks about how God works there. And he says, well, let's start in verse 32. Then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. In other words, you understand that God will take us through chastisement in order to show us what's really in our heart, but he will not remove his steadfast love from us. That is a loving father in heaven. And the implication here in Hebrews 12 is that if you don't go through hardship, you have good reason to question whether or not you're a genuine believer. God's not interested in you. If your life is always smooth, everything always goes your way. You have good reason to question whether or not you're one of his children. But a loving father will take his children through difficulties and hardships. So, number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. And you say at this point, okay, I understand, but you still haven't answered the question, is God punishing me? Well, that brings us to number three. Look at verse 10. Hebrews 12, verse 10. For they, speaking of earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Sometimes earthly fathers don't do the best in terms of their discipline. But God, that is he, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness all of God's discipline is for our good. Every bit of it. So number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. Number three, this discipline is not punitive. It's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. Think about that. This discipline is not punitive, it's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. God does that in your life. We're not paying for our sin. You know why we say that? Because earlier in the book of Hebrews, go back to Hebrews chapter 10, he's already established the fact that Christ has paid it all. Hebrews 10.10, and by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's an all-sufficient payment of sin. He's paid for our sins past, present, future. All the sins have been paid for. We don't add any of our sufferings to his suffering in order to make that payment complete. He's done it all. It's all forgiven. That's the type of Savior we have. Verse 12, 
But when Christ had offered for all time, you see that? A single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is why we don't practice what Roman Catholicism practices. So many Hail Marys or repeated masses. We don't do that. Because we don't have to add our sufferings to what Christ has already done in order to have a complete payment before God. We don't have to add that. His payment is complete. It's satisfied. The whole thing. This discipline is not punitive. It's corrective. Think about it. If I was really paying for my sin, if that were really the case, I'd be in hell. You say, well, my life is hell. And I say, well, you don't know what hell is. Not the hell of the Bible. This discipline is not punitive. It's corrective in order to bring greater holiness, bring about greater holiness in my life. That's what it is. All right, then there's one question that still remains. How do I know that all of this affliction has done its job? How do I know that? How do I know that it's affected what it's supposed to affect in my life? That brings us to verse 11. This is our fourth thing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems to be painful, seems painful rather than pleasant. And boy, all God's people can say amen to that, huh? But later, look at this. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, not punished for it, to those who have been trained by it. So number one, I must view all hardship as God's discipline in my life. When God brings discipline into my life, he's acting as a loving father. This discipline is not punitive, it's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. And number four, how do I know whether or not it's really worked? I'll know that this hardship has done its job because, listen, my heart will be at peace. There is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'll know when this hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. Well, I'm, I'm not going to fight God over this. There's not, my heart is not going to be full of anxiety. I'm not going to resist him. I'm not going to be full of anxiousness. I'm okay, even though the hardship and the affliction is still present in my life, there is the peaceful fruit of righteousness that abides in my heart. Davy Blackburn has had to experience that kind of peace. He's gone through hardship this week. His congregation has gone through hardship this week. And from all the testimonies I've read of what he said, he loves his wife, he misses his wife, he is in grief, but he trusts what God has done. Jonathan Edwards, probably America's greatest theologian, while he was the president of New Jersey, which later on became Princeton University, from a human perspective, he died a premature death March 22nd, 1758, during the time that Catherine the Great ruled Russia. He had a very close relationship with his wife, Sarah. And upon his death, his grieving widow, Sarah Pierpont Edwards, wrote to their daughter these words 
and their daughter had just lost her husband as well. Listen to what Sarah wrote. This is a genuine woman of faith. She said, what shall we say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it, but my God lives and he has my heart and we are all given to God. Can you do that when you have just gone through a grief experience of affliction and turn around and kiss the rod that just struck you across the back? Oh, that we may kiss the rod. Charles Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the wave that has thrown me against the rock of ages. Can you do that? I've learned to kiss the wave that has thrown me against the rock of ages. That's really key. Well, number one, I must view hardship as God's discipline. Number two, when God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. Number three, this discipline is not punitive, it's corrective in order to bring about greater holiness in my life. And number four, I'll know when this hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. I can kiss the rod that just struck me across the back. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, I know that there are many men and women in this congregation today that are probably going through difficulties, hardships, and grief. I pray, Father, that they'll have a broader picture a more biblical picture as to the effect and the efficiency or sufficiency of the Word of God. And Father, reassure our hearts that you are a God who's very much in control and you're bringing about every circumstance that we encounter in our life for our good. This we pray. In the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.